Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Through four. And uh, while you're turning there, you can think about in history, there are certain kind of transformational events that have happened. Excuse me. Where things happen that either transform a country or or even transform the the world, all over the world. Uh, It may be things that transform the economy, may transform culture. Uh, or just, you know, the, the way that people think about things. So if you think about something like flight, right? So when flight is invented and uh, man is able to finally fly, then, you know, it, it transforms the world. It goes from, hey, it, it takes <clears throat> months to get across, like the U.S., to, hey, you can do it in five hours, you know, and you can decide... I'm going to take a, a week vacation, like Jeff, to California. Yeah. Where before that, it was not a possibility. Things like nuclear power. You, know, you think about how that transformed the world. Where you have countries like France, the entire country is run off of nuclear power. We just think about the past two years of what we've lived through. It's a transformational event. You know, how many of you were working from home before two years ago? Now, how many of you are excited to go back to the office, right? There's one event, though, that transformed not just the world, not just a country, but it transformed everything. Everything that we can see, everything that we can't see, it really changed the course of history. And that was the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ came as this divine God-man. And this incarnation transformed the world. But as much as it transformed the world, it has a more personal transformation that should take place within each each one of our lives. And that's what we're going to look at today. John is writing this letter because there were some people that had come into the church, they were attacking the church, and, and they were saying things like, well, Jesus was not really a man. He, he was just this you know, spiritual being. Yeah, he might have looked like it, but uh, you know, in reality, he was just a spiritual being. There was not, not any physical sense to him. It was almost like he was some sort of Casper the ghost or something. And John is arguing against this. And John will argue and say, no, there was a divinity to him, You know, there was a Godhead to him, but he was also a real living man. And then John will look at, how does that transform your lives? And we're really going to look at three kind of questions that you have to ask yourself uh, uh, when you're faced with Jesus and this reality of Jesus is, has your eternity been changed by the Incarnation? Has your eternity been changed by the Incarnation? Have your relationships been conformed by the Incarnation? And then thirdly, has your joy been completed by the Incarnation? So we'll look at those three questions as we kind of work through John's introduction to this book. So let me read the first two verses. And John says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John starts out by providing a, a witness to the events of Christ. You know, if, if we think about it, are you able to say, hey, I saw Jesus, I heard Jesus, I touched Jesus? You're not able to say that. You know, we didn't experience Jesus in that way. John, on the other hand, was able to say that. John had spent three years in ministry with Christ, getting to see him in action, getting to, to hear his teaching, getting to, to touch him and, and experience this individual. And so John says, understand that he was from the beginning, that this Jesus was not just a man that did good and, and lived a good life, and then when he hit you know, his late 20s, early 30s, then God bestowed upon him some sort of divinity. No, he, he was divine from before time, from the beginning. And he says he wasn't just a spiritual being either. You know, he, he gives these evidences. You know, I heard him. You know, and hearing is kind of one of the easiest things to discount. You know, if, you, if you're like me as we're getting older, you know, my hearing is kind of going away, right? Uh, and you start to lose your hearing. And so hearing is not always reliable. But John says, hey, we heard him. And scripture talks about the importance of hearing that message. In Romans 10, 17, says that faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. So it was through Christ that we received a message that was able to transform us, that gave us the faith that we have in him. John goes on, he says, we saw him with our own eyes. You know, there was this personal nature to, to the witness of Jesus Christ. It was literal. It was historical. It wasn't just a, a vision that they had. It wasn't just a, a dream that they had. But they literally experienced Christ. And then he says, we touched him with our hands. Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. They experienced Jesus with all of the senses that they had. And so then John goes on to talk about this incarnation of Christ. What did it do? This divine being that was from the beginning, that was from before time, that came as this physical man, he says that this man came to testify, to proclaim to you the eternal life. You know, our, our world is obsessed with life. You know, how to extend life, how to, to make life easier, how to, to make life better. You think about, uh, you know, people that want to extend life beyond the grave. Uh, if you're a baseball fan, Ted Williams, Hall of Famer, great baseball player, and like his head resides in a freezer somewhere right now, waiting for the health advances to come where they could bring him back to life. <laughs> Think about the insanity of that, that you make plans, that you set aside resources, funds, to have your head frozen or your body frozen, hoping that sometime in the future they can bring you back to life or your consciousness back. We go to the doctor, we're always seeking health care to try and extend our lives. The world is 
obsessed with it. Yet here, John says, if you want to extend your life, I've got a deal for you. I can extend it, or I can tell you how to get it extended, into eternity. And he says it's through Jesus Christ that you can receive this eternal life. Now, I understand it's not eternal life here on this world, but is that really what we want? I mean, do we really want eternal life here on this world where we have to go through pandemics and you have to go through you know, losses of your job and traffic and just the, the daily grind of this world? That eternal life, John's going to go on to reveal what it looks like in his other book, Revelation. And, and it's not, you know, the, the common, you know, secular idea of you're sitting on a, a cloud with like some white diaper on playing a harp and singing hymns for eternity. That's not the reality that John presents in Revelations. In Revelation, he presents this view of, no, there's a new earth, this new creation, and it's not broken like ours is. You know, you're, you're not having to, to deal with the pain and the tears and the struggle and, and the weeds and everything that comes with this broken world, but rather it's a new world that's being, being remade. There's going to be uh, you know, new cities. He even talks about nations and uh, you know, there's still cultures and things in heaven. It's not just kind of this homogenous, you know, boring, white cloud type thing. There's even going to be work. I know that sounds terrible at times, right? But think about work that's been freed from the shackles of the bad parts of work. You know, think about the, uh, there's parts of work that you enjoy. Now just think about if all of work was that enjoyable and it was something that your work was useful and it produced something good and you didn't have to struggle with it and you didn't have to fight. That's the, the, the vision of eternity that John presents. And so, has your life been transformed and your view of eternity been transformed by the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And I don't just mean, have you accepted Christ and so now you've received eternal life? That's part of that transformation. But it's also, how are you viewing that eternal life? You know, are you excited about it? Is it something that you're looking forward to? Is it something that you know, gives you, you know, a drive in your life? My wife, her favorite holiday of the year is Christmas. She loves Christmas. And the part of Christmas that she likes, besides birth of Jesus Christ, I understand that's number one for her. But this, the second part that she loves about Christmas is giving gifts. Now, for most of us, it's probably the receiving gifts part that we like. But for her, she actually likes to give gifts. She puts a lot of thought and effort into it. She goes out and she thinks about each person that she's going to be getting a gift for. And it's unique. And there's, you know, she takes time doing it. And she, she orders them. And, and she'll get personal cards. And she puts so much effort into it. And then we hit Christmas Eve. And it, it is just a bear. Because all of Christmas Eve is, can we open gifts now? And I was like, no, it's Christmas is tomorrow. Come on, come on. But, uh, okay, 
can we just do one gift? And so, you know, she negotiated early on in our marriage, you know, can we just do one gift? And it was like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll do one gift. Now we're at the point where we don't even open gifts on Christmas morning because they've all been opened on Christmas Eve. <laughs> like, Christmas morning happens Christmas night, or Christmas Eve. And, you know, because she's excited about it. You know, she knows, yeah, here's these, these gifts, and, and there's this excitement, and, and she can't help but want to see people open these gifts and, you know, enjoy them. And this is what John, his attitude is. Look at what he says here in verse 2 again. He says, the life was made manifest. We've seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You know, he says, Christ transformed my eternity. I know what eternity holds for us. I know this exciting vision of what's in eternity, and I can't help but proclaim it to you, to testify it to you. You know, I have to share it with you. You know, you've all experienced this, right? You, you get a secret, somebody tells you something, and, and it's like you're walking around like, who else can I share this with, you know? Uh, who can I tell? I've got to tell somebody this. I can't just keep this inside. That's how John is. I've got this message. I, I've been transformed by the eternity that was given to me by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So then you have to ask yourself, has your eternity been transformed by the incarnation? Is that how you live your life? Is your view of Christ, is it just <clears throat> kind of sit with you and, okay, we go to church and Bible study and we'll sing and, yeah, and then we just kind of get on with the, the daily chores of life? Or is there an excitement about what Christ has promised for you, about the, the vision of the future that he has for you, where you get to live a life on this new creation, this new earth? You don't have to worry about the daily grind and the tears and the sadness and the sorrow and all of the bad things that are a part of this world. John goes on. He starts to talk about the relationships that we have. Verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have a fellowship with us. And indeed, your fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So you have to ask, have your relationships then been transformed by the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Have your relationships been transformed? I probably would have worded this a little bit differently. It was probably a good thing because I'm not inspired, and so I probably would have been wrong. But you, you, look how John says this. He says, you too may have fellowship with us. We've proclaimed the gospel to you so that you can have fellowship with us. I mean, wouldn't you write it like, we've proclaimed the gospel to you so you can have a relationship with God and, you know, hang out with us or, you know, and through God, because of God, then you have a relationship with us. Rather, he's saying that one of the purposes of the gospel is so that you can have a fellowship with each other. It's not just a, a, you know, a byproduct of salvation, 
that you have relationships with the people in this room. It's one of the purposes of salvation that you can have relationships with people in this room. If you think about it, you go back to creation. <clears throat> back in creation, God creates the world and he tells Adam and Eve, I want you to go populate the world. You know, and you're to fill this world. Because he created man as a relational being. And he wanted them to have relationships with each other. To, to know each other, to, to help each other, to care for each other. Sin broke that relationship. And so man is then shattered and, and scattered. And then they rebel against God and you have the Tower of Babel. And so then they're, they're sent out around the world and given different languages. And mankind is, is broken apart. And there's wars and strife that come from that. And the gospel repairs that. The gospel removes that separation that we have among each other. So then we can come together and we can worship. We can come together from different cultures, different ethnicities, different languages, and we can worship together. Last week, um, I was preaching in another church in Arlington, and it, it's a Chinese church, and then they have a church plant that's an English church. And so I went and preached at their English church because I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. But a friend of mine, unbeknownst to me, was preaching in the first service. And so we saw each other as we were crossing over, and he, he said, yeah, you know, I, I preach in Cantonese, and then they have a translator that is actually translating into Mandarin too. Because not everybody even in the, that congregation speaks the same language. But they can come together and worship together as this Cantonese, Mandarin, English conglomeration because they're all centered around Jesus Christ. We think about what the world views friendship as. Friendship with the world is often, what can you do for me? You know, you'll, you'll hear about friendships. This is a 50-50 deal. You know, you got to put your 50% in, and I'll put my 50% in. If you're not giving your 50%, then I'm not going to give mine. Or you'll, sometimes you'll hear, oh, you got to give 100% to this friendship. And if you don't, then I'm not, I'm not giving anything. And really, that's just a, what can you do for me? You know? And if you're not doing for me, then I'm not going to have a friendship with you. You know, friendships are based around... Does this relationship make me feel good? Do, do I enjoy it? Am I getting something from it? How are these other people serving me? And the relationships that we have with each other in Christ is much different than that. <clears throat> Biblical friendship is based around how you've been transformed by the word of life. Are we glorifying God? What can we do for God? How are we worshiping God? How can we support each other? I started out uh, after high school. I was in the, the Coast Guard and spent four years in the Coast Guard. And in the Coast Guard, one of their main responsibilities is they do search and rescue. You, and so you'll be in Alaska or somewhere like that, and a ship will sink, and they have to go rescue them. And so they'll fly a helicopter out there. If the helicopter finds this sinking boat, they will pull up on this thing above and hover above it, and they'll lower a rescue swimmer down into the water. And he'll start gathering the people and throwing them in a basket or hooking them to a hook and sending them back up to the helicopter. Now, one of the disadvantages with the helicopter is you can only fit so many people on it. You know? And so 
if you've got 10 people in the water, you're not fitting all 10 people on the helicopter. And at some point, the helicopter fills up. And so that helicopter then will take those people and they'll fly back to either a ship or to the, back to land to drop them off. Now notice, they don't pull the rescue swimmer back out of the water. They leave him there in the water and they fly back. And he stays in the water with the rest of the people that are still waiting to be rescued. What would drive an individual to jump into the ocean somewhere in the freezing cold, potentially the middle of the night, to float in the water for an hour or so while you wait for a helicopter, hopefully to come back and find you again? I mean, I have a hard enough time finding that my keys, <laughs> let alone somebody that's drifting in the ocean. Why would they do that? Because everybody in the Coast Guard makes a commitment. They make a commitment to, we're going to be a part of you know, this mission for search and rescue. We're going to be committed to our fellow Coast Guardsmen. And we're going to support each other. And so for him, he understands that they're going to come back because they've made an oath, because they've made a commitment. And so he has a trust in that. It's the same thing with the church. You know, we've committed, we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So our friendships are not based around, what can these people do for me? Do I like these people? I mean, because honestly, to speak frankly, there are a lot of us in the church that just aren't that likable, right? Even as Christians... We haven't been transformed enough to become fully likable, right? <laughs> I understand. At times I can be one of those unlikable people. But that doesn't define our relationships. Our relationships in the church, in Christianity, are based around Jesus Christ. So we have to look at this other individual that may not be as likable and lovable as we are. And we have to say, well, you know what, though? Christ loved them enough to die. And I'm not, I don't love them enough to have them over for a meal. I don't love them enough to shake their hand, to say hi to them, to champion their causes. You know, you don't have enough love for them. Your relationships have been transformed by Christ. Your relationships in the church look like the relationship you say you have with God. You know, you're not going to go to God and start accusing God of not being nice enough. You know, God, you're not nice enough. You didn't die enough times on the cross for me. Or whatever. No. Your relationships with the other individuals here should look the same as your relationship with God. You see what John says here again. So that you too may have fellowship, friendship, relationships with us and indeed our fellowship is with God the Father and with his son Jesus Christ I, I've heard unbelievers at times say oh, I like Jesus Christ you know, Jesus Christ is great I just don't like his followers you know so I, I'm not a part of organized religion I'm not a part of the church you know because I'll take Jesus but I won't take his followers now just imagine how this statement works out. So Jesus Christ, his relationship to the church is that he's the head of the church. The church is his body. So when you say, 
I like Jesus Christ, but I don't like his followers. It would be like if I showed up for dinner one night. You invited my wife Kelly and I over for dinner. And I showed up, and it was just me, and, I, and I'm carrying a basket. And you invited me into the house, and you said, well, what happened to Kelly? I said, oh, she's carrying the basket. And I opened the basket up, and it's just her head. Besides calling 911 as fast as you could, you would say, this is insane. That's not Kelly anymore. You can't have the head without the body. You can't separate them. Does does no good. So when you say, oh, I like Jesus, but I don't like the people that follow him, you're saying, I'll take his head, but I don't want the body. You know, you want to decapitate Christ. So, how do you view those people that are sitting in the pews around you, the chairs around you, that you go to studies with in the middle of the week? What is your view of them? Are you viewing them as just, you know, a necessary evil to be where you're at? Or do you view them as family, as adopted members of the family of God? Because that's what they are. Mark says, you know, or Jesus says in Mark, that those that do the will of my father are the ones that are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. And those are the ones that are my family. Because you get adopted when you do the will of God and place your faith in Christ. Do you view the other churches the same way? You know, the other churches in the area aren't competition. You know, we're not businesses in competition for people or money. We're in competition to proclaim the word of God. You know, and are you viewing them as fellow family members? Are you viewing those Christians around the world as your family? You know, you'll... You'll call and you'll write to your family members that are on the other side of the country. But do you view those missionaries and those other churches around the world in the same way? That they're distant family members. Because that's what they are. And someday, you're going to spend eternity with them. So, have your relationships been transformed by the incarnation of Christ? And then our last question is, has your joy been completed by the incarnation? Has your joy been completed by the incarnation? And the idea of joy is another one that we probably have to provide a definition for. Webster's Dictionary says that joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. The emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. In that case, most of us after these past two years probably don't have much joy. You know, because there hasn't been a whole lot of well-being in the past couple of years. There hasn't been a whole lot of success and a lot of good fortune, right? It's been a dismal amount of time. Stay home, okay, go, no, don't go back to work, stay home still. Wear your mask, don't wear your mask, don't talk to people, don't go anywhere, you can't fly, okay, you can fly, no, you can't fly. I, I mean, it's just been chaos, right? Does that mean it's, there's no joy available? Is your joy simply based upon the events and the circumstances that are going on around you? Because if that's the case, then your joy is going to look like a, a yo-yo. It's going to be going up and down, it's going to be wild and all over the place, because 
the events of life are not always going to be good. There's going to be bad things that happen. There are going to be difficult times. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be strife. And is your joy going to bottom out at those times? Scripture talks about joy in a lot of different ways. The Old Testament looks at joy as kind of this part of the life of Israel. That being a part of Israel, uh, experiencing life with Israel, is like this joyful event. It'll talk about in Isaiah that joy is, is also connected to God's salvation. That you receive joy from the salvation of God. You'll see in Psalms, joy comes both in, in corporate worship as Israel gets together. You know, they have loud music and joyful times and dancing. But it's also in personal times where there's a, a joy that comes because of a relationship with God that you have. In the New Testament... Uh, the first three Gospels talk about joy in connection to the kingdom of God. That, you know, have joy because the kingdom of God is at hand. The incarnation is here. The kingdom of God is here. Have joy. John, in his Gospel, talks about how it's Jesus who communicates that joy. That it's Jesus who, who brings that joy. And it's that word of Jesus Christ that gives you joy. Acts connects joy to the church and the relationships that you have with those members in the church and worshiping with the church and serving with the church brings joy. In the epistles, joy is talked about in three different ways. One, about being a member of the body of Christ, again. So your being a part of the church should bring you joy. You should find joy here with these people Worshiping, serving, ministering. Joy is also a gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's something that can increase. You know, you don't become a Christian and then you're instantly this hyper joyful person, right? It doesn't work that way. It, it can be something that grows and builds as you understand and your relationships grow. And then, strangely enough, joy is also linked with suffering, which seems bizarre. Colossians 1.24 is an example. He says, Now I rejoice, I find joy in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So there Paul says, I find joy in my sufferings. And he's not, you know, a masochist. It's not that, you know, he just enjoys suffering. That's not the idea. Rather, it's the idea that I am ministering to those people that Christ loves, those people that Christ died for to save. I'm serving them, and so I can find joy in that because I'm serving Christ through serving them. So what causes John to have a complete joy back in our letter? Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So what he's saying is, I'm writing to you the gospel. I'm writing to you the message of Jesus Christ 
so that you guys will understand it, so that your lives will be transformed by it. And when your lives are transformed and we see the fruit of that, it's going to bring us joy. It's like my wife giving gifts. You know, if she gave everybody in the family the gifts and we all went, oh, yeah, that's great, and we just threw it off to the side, next year Christmas will probably be a different event, you know? <laughs> but rather, everybody gets excited because they're specialized gifts, and it's neat, and it's exciting, and then she feeds <coughs> off of that excitement. That's what John is talking about. I've shared the gospel with you. I see your lives transformed. I see you go from a hateful person to a loving person. I see you go from this sinner to this person that's pursuing holiness. I see you go from somebody that has no hope that's lost to somebody that's hoping in the eternity that's been promised to you. And that brings John joy. So you have to ask yourself, what is your joy based on? And understand that joy is not just simply an emotion. It's not just, oh, I feel good. You know, I feel joyful. But rather, it's a choice. It's a, it's a choice that you make that, you know what? I am going through bad things. You know, I'm struggling with the, the death of a family member or a loss of a job or, you know, health issues or whatever they are. I understand those are difficult things. And emotionally, you're not just going to be joyful and giddy about it. But rather, what it is is I'm not going to set my focus on those events but I'm going to turn my focus to the promises of Christ, to the promises that he made when he came, incarnated himself, and I'm going to allow that to give me joy. Mm -hmm. Not the bad things that are happening, and, and it doesn't negate that those things are happening. Martin Lloyd-Jones, <clears throat> talking about joy, said it this way. He said, joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and the entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There's only one thing that can give true joy, and that is the contemplation, the thought of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. In him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're going to experience bad things, but you've chosen instead to focus on Jesus Christ and those promises and allow that to bring you joy. Because everything else, honestly, in this world is going to fail you. Everything apart from Christ can fail you. Everything apart from Christ can bring you sadness and can affect your joy. But Christ is not going to fail you. So do you find joy from your transformed life? Because John is making an argument in this book. He's going to say it later on. He's going to say, you know, how do you find assurance of your salvation? How do you know that you're saved? <clears throat> And he's going to talk about three different things. He's going to say, one, do you have a right view of Christ? If you have a right view of Christ, that's your first step in the assurance of your salvation. Your second step is, has your life been transformed? Are you behaving in a right way? Are you pursuing the holiness that God desires? And it's not that you're sinless. It's not that you're perfect. 
Because none of us this side of heaven are perfect. And then third, are you doing the belief in Christ and the right actions in Christ with an attitude of love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Those are the three things that you evaluate to assure yourself of your salvation. And they all fit right within these four verses. Do you have the right view of Christ? Do you understand that he was from the beginning, that he was divine, that he came in person, that he was a man? Do you understand that you're supposed to change, that you're supposed to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that you're supposed to have right relationships, that you're supposed to be pursuing holiness? And then are you doing it in love? And so as he goes forward, he's going to start to expand on those three things. But for yourself, you have to evaluate yourself. What's my view of Christ? And then that view of Christ, has it changed my view of eternity? Has it changed my view of relationships? And has it changed my view of joy? Or am I still stuck in the position I was before I placed my faith in Christ? You go ahead and close this prayer. Dear Lord, we are so grateful and just thankful for your word and for the lessons that we can learn from it. We're thankful that you sent your son to, to be that transformational event, that he came not just to, to transform this world, but to transform each and every one of our lives. That you have enough love and care for us as individuals to send him to remove the sin, to repair a relationship with you, and to repair our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that you would continue to transform our heart and our attitudes and our actions and everything about our life, that you would continue to conform us. The world would look at us and see your son lived out through us, that they would see the gospel in our lives, that they would hear the gospel in our speech, and that they would experience the gospel in our actions. I pray that you would allow your spirit to just continue to teach us as we look through your word, as we study your word, as we grow to become more Christ-like. In your name, amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.